to many as the father of modern missions, fascinated by the news of undiscovered lands from, actually from the journals of Captain Cook, and captivated by the call of Christ to preach the good news to all creation, uh, Carey felt really challenged to do something. And he challenged other people to do something too. So on Wednesday the 30th of May 1792, thoroughly convicted in his own heart of the necessity of taking the gospel to all nations, he preached to a Northamptonshire Baptist Association, um, one of his most influential sermons, probably one of the most influential sermons on in the modern age, actually, with what God did through this man and this sermon. He preached from Isaiah 54, and his main point was crystal clear. God's eternal plan concerning the spread of the gospel cannot be thwarted. But that doesn't mean that the church should sit back and do nothing. On the contrary, he said, the church will succeed precisely because God ordained it. And then he said it. He summed it all up in ten words. Expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. Now what Carey applied, if you like, to the external journey of the gospel to the ends of the earth, I want to, I want to steal it tonight and apply it to the internal journey of our sanctification. The internal journey of our growth towards Christ-likeness, which is what sanctification means. Expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. In fact, I think that's a great summary of last week's sermon and this week's sermon. So last week in verses 3 and 4 of 2 Peter 1, Peter has basically said to us, expect great things from God. He told us in verses 3 and 4, That God has given us everything we need for life and godliness. He's given us his power and he's given us his promises to enable us, can you believe it, to participate in the divine nature. That's another way of just saying becoming more and more godly and escape the corruption of the world caused by those wicked desires again. Now in verses 5 to 11, you could summarize it with this. Attempt great things for God. Since you have everything that you need for life and godliness, roll up the proverbial sleeves. I used to sit in my living room at times. And whenever, you know what that means, roll up your sleeves, don't you? My mum used to walk in and I knew it was chore time. Because she would walk in and the first thing she would say would be, roll up your sleeves, son. I'd be like, oh no, I've set out the lawnmower, I've put your gardening clothes by the back door. I was like, I don't even have gardening clothes. Who knows? I don't know where she got them. In any case, she, she was saying to me, get your sleeves rolled up. I've given you everything you need. It's all by the back door. I've cleared the footballs away from the back garden. You've everything you need. Roll up your sleeves, get to work. And I think it's something similar to what Peter's trying to say to us tonight, since you have everything you need according to God's amazing provision of his power and his promises, roll up your sleeves and reap the rewards. That's point one and two. Roll up your sleeves and point two, 
reap the rewards. First of all, roll up your sleeves. Peter is writing to Christians who are still quite young in their faith, and it's clear that he wants them to grow. He made that clear in his former letter, his last letter to them in 1 Peter. But he wants them to grow. He's made this plain in this letter. Make every effort to grow. And he's saying, apply yourself with all diligence. That's what he's saying in verse 5. Make, for this reason, in other words, because you've been given all these things, make every effort to add. He'll use the word increase a little bit later on. You've got power. God is very active in giving you this power. Therefore, get active. Now, that's not a contradiction. It's quite common to read commands like that in the New Testament that, that show that the source of what we're, the thing that God wants us to do is enabled by God himself. So in Philippians, it's probably the most common one, work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Now, you need to make sure that we never get, get those the wrong way around. Because that's not the gospel. It's not even true. Never say, I work out my salvation with fear and trembling in order that God will work in me to will and to act according to his good purpose. That's not the gospel. If you do that, you're confused about what the Bible says about justification and sanctification. And those are very, very important words for us to read and understand from the Bible and even in relation to what we're looking at tonight. So I'm going to show you a graph. Here is something I never thought I would ever do. Here is a graph, okay? Let's have the graph up. Okay. That little yellow bouncing dot there, that's the day that you were born. Happy birthday. On the left-hand axis, you've got righteousness, okay? Zero at the bottom, uh, 100% righteous at the top, and that, uh, the bottom axis is, of course, your age. Going on past 100 there, that's, that's good, isn't it? Okay, so 100% righteous. So when we're born, we're born as those who are sinners. We're born sinners, okay? Now I want to show you what happens when we are born again. Here's justification for you. So I became a Christian when I was 19, right? At that point, I saw my sin for what it is. I turned to Jesus as my only savior. And I was, as Jesus describes, born again. There was a new creation that started in me where the old life was dead and buried. The new life was mine to live because God is unbelievably loving and gracious. Okay? Now, at that point, I became, Christ's righteousness was imputed to me, which is basically a way of, say, a way of saying it was transferred, his 100% sinless perfection was transferred really to my account so that I am positionally justified. I am positionally made right with the Lord God, okay? Now, am I perfect in every way? Am I 100% pure and righteous? No, definitely not, and neither are you. But what we see, that righteousness, that, that doesn't come until a later point, which a later point, which is called glorification. This is what happens at death. I've given myself to late to nine, apparently. I didn't... Uh, I mean, to include myself in that. Never mind. Anyway, there's a downside to that. Um, so at death, that is the point where we are finally transformed. Sin and suffering are wiped away. Praise be to God. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole. I love it. It's gone. That's the point when sin and suffering will truly be gone. Now, the bit in between 
Okay, from that point where we have the new birth to that point when we die, this is the bit called sanctification. This is where we are called to grow in Christ-likeness. Now notice the justification comes first, and you are positionally righteous in Christ, but sanctification comes next, and this is the stage where God has supplied the power, as we see from verses 3 and 4, and this is the place then where we apply ourselves. You can ask me questions about that afterwards if it's not particularly clear. But the graph, I think, provides something of a useful picture of the Christian life, actually not only in terms of the order of things, in terms of the order of salvation, but the expectation of the Christian life. That God actually expects us from this point of conversion to add to our faith. To possess godly qualities in increasing measure that we actually grow in righteousness so that we become more and more like Jesus. So that when we read in verse 5, Peter saying, make every effort to add to your faith, or if you possess these godly qualities in increasing measure, then there ought to be a continual and progressive growth in godliness. My question for us is, are we growing in godliness? There is a space on the back of your sheet for tonight when you go home to take a few minutes to reflect on what we've been thinking about tonight, to map out and chart your own graph. When did you become a Christian? What's the Christian life look like for you? There is an expectation that we grow. It's a pardon in the simple commands that, that Peter makes to us. Make every effort to add and then be all the more eager to make your calling and election secure or sure. And the same word is used in both sentences, which, and it basically has this kind of propulsive, move forward, advance in your faith. Grow in your faith. Now, you might be asking, how do I actually do that? What kind of things am I supposed to pursue? Well, Peter, gladly, doesn't leave us in the dark in this regard. He gives us a nudge in the right direction with a list of godly qualities. Look with me at verses 5 to 7. Make every effort to add to your faith goodness and so on. He gives us eight things here. Now, that's not really an exhaustive list. Um, He mentions other things in the book of 1 Peter, for example. But I don't, and neither do I think that this list is necessarily ladder-like or sequential. I don't think these are godly qualities that should be added one after the other. So it's not that you move on from growing in knowledge once you've mastered goodness, for example. No, Peter is just trying to get the message across that actually the Christian pursuit of growth in godliness and Christ-likeness is, well, it covers all areas, really. And it shows that Christians are never truly content with what they presently have by way of spiritual attainment. So in other words, he's saying, look, don't ever stand still in this. Add. Keep on adding. Keep on advancing. Going forward. You know, as you stand in your faith, apply yourself in the pursuit of goodness. And as you grow in goodness, don't be satisfied with that. Strive to grow and add to knowledge, even possessing that in an increasing measure. Now, you can argue that this list, though not exhaustive, is actually, it, it does cover the basis in many respects. It touches 
on three areas of Christ-likeness, really. So it touches on Christ-likeness in character when you look at faith, goodness, and knowledge. So faith. Make every effort to place your full trust in God. Faith, of course, is the starting point for our salvation. It is by grace you have been saved, Paul would tell the Thessalonians. Ephesians, thank you. I had a mind blank there. Um, It is by grace that you have been saved through faith. I'm sure it was written all over my face. Um, It is by grace you have been saved through faith. It is through believing that you come to enjoy salvation and the benefits that come with it. But make every effort not to, to place your full trust in God, not just for salvation, but for all of life. Making every effort to take God at his word in increasing measure. So I can ask, are we making every effort to increase the quality of our faith? Adding to it. Are we more and more likely to take God at his word and say, okay, you have promised this, you have said this, therefore I'm going to walk forward trusting in this. Or... Do you find yourself walking forward saying, mm, I'm not sure, that's a, that feels a little bit risky? Peter tells us to add to our faith. And when we do that, to expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. Or goodness, make every effort to pursue the very moral excellence that, was, that, that described the Lord God in verse 3. Make every effort to participate in the divine nature. Flee the corruption caused by evil desires. Are we actually making any effort to do that? What does it look like for you? Do you see yourself over the last year finding yourself with an ability, an increasing ability by God's grace to say no to ungodliness and yes to faith? Or in knowledge making every effort to grow in what you know, making every effort to take, this is what knowledge is, growing in knowledge is, isn't it? It's taking what's in here, in the Bible, and it's putting it in here, in the brain. It's taking Paul's word to Timothy, think over what I say and the Lord will give you understanding in these things. It's tumbling it around in your head. And then that's what helps us walk in wisdom, isn't it? Because wisdom is when you take what's in here and live it out in your daily life. So are we making every effort to use the means that God has given us to help us grow? His word written, preached, explained in books and in Bible study. As we help each other grow in knowledge by helping each other apply what we learn. Are we doing that? Expecting great things from God in that regard and attempting great things from God for, for God. Well, not only do we see Christ-likeness in our character in these lists, this list, we see Christ-likeness in our resolve in regards to self-control and perseverance. With self-control, the Greek word means to hold oneself in. Are you making every effort to control the desires that might otherwise overtake you? Things that you know, they do not please God. They bring the name of Jesus into disrepute. And they're just not good for you in what you do. They bring guilt and shame. You find yourself making more strenuous efforts, though, to be strong in the face of temptation. For the Lord has said, you'll give us the grace to stand up under it. 
or maybe with perseverance, where we press on through tough times in the present in light of the promise of better times ahead. Are you persevering and enduring in your faith? Or maybe you're thinking about giving up. Maybe you've been on a plateau for a long time and you're thinking, is it worth it? Not only do we have Christ-likeness in our character or Christ-likeness in our resolve, we have thirdly Christ-likeness in our relationships. This is what the godliness, the brotherly kindness and love are all about. So godliness, are you making an effort to be a truer reflection of Jesus in everyday life? Meditating on his character. Meditating on his instruction. Looking to apply it. Brotherly kindness. Are we growing in love for our brothers and sisters and our church family? Making every effort to not only live peaceably with one another, but seek healthy, strong relationships with one another. So that we might have every opportunity for the full expression of the love that the Lord expects us to show one another. And love, not only for one another in the life of the church, but for everyone. Even as Jesus says, for our enemies. Is the supreme characteristic that marks the Lord Jesus' existence the definitive characteristic that marks ours? Peter encourages us. Don't forget verse 3 and 4. His divine power has given us everything we need for these eight things. For these three areas. He's given us his promises that he's taken us toward Christ's likeness. And one day when we're glorified, we'll have it. Do we press on with the knowledge of that power and let it drive and spur our own activity in these things? Are we making every effort to grow in these areas? Let's return to our grass for a second. This was a graph that I think reasonably depicted. Can we have the first one up? Oh no, that's, that's okay. Keep that one up. You remember the graph that I showed you was one where there was a kind of continual and progressive growth over time. I think that's, that depicts a person who's making every effort to grow in Christ-likeness. I asked you what your graph might look like, and I know that no graph can perfectly depict every Christian experience. It's impossible. There are lots of variations, and I just thought I would show you five quick variations. So here, for example, is a deathbed conversion. There's not a lot of time to grow. Maybe someone eight years old, in a hospital bed, um, they, they can be saved and have initial growth and sanctification, but their life is not long. You could move that, those two lines down a bit there and you'd have the thief on the cross. There is a deathbed conversion. There's a variation. Or you could have a serious moral failure graph. So maybe this person has become a Christian. They've grown for a while, but there has been a point of serious sin. And it's taken a while for them to get back on track. This could be King David's graph. Sometimes you have folks who you could describe as being late bloomers. Those who have lived their life, they've kind of plateaued for a long time, been pretty, not really doing an awful lot in terms of growth and godliness, but something happens. The Lord God convicts them of something. Maybe, maybe they're introduced to, maybe someone sat down with them and actually explained the Bible to them for the first time. And they've all of a sudden started to grasp and they've begun to grow. That's another variation. Or maybe there's the, as Jesus says to one of the churches in Revelation, the the forsaken first love graph. This is, a, this is a really, really sad graph. But it's not uncommon. 
People who have started out well, they've, had a, they've committed themselves to what Peter has commanded and they've started to add to their faith goodness. They've grown in these virtues and in these three areas, but then they've plateaued for a while and they've actually thought, well, do you know, the worldly desires are actually a little bit fanciful. I like them. I'm going to turn back to them a little bit more. It's the kind of thing that Peter objects to in 1 Peter 3. And they find themselves with a regression. Um, This is the kind of person I think will be saved but through the flames by the skin of their teeth in some respect. And the last one, well, this is a wasted life. I think this would be the saddest one of all. The next one, did it come? There it is. That would be an ineffective and unproductive life. That would be a life where you've probably hardly ever read your Bible, never really told anyone about the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't make going to church, being with the church, let's use that word correctly, being with the church family, expressing love for one another with gratitudes never doing any of those things, never attempting to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus at all. Yeah, people with a basic knowledge of the gospel can still be saved, but that would be a wasted life. How do we grow? How do we grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ? How do we make sure that we don't become like any of these depictions or variations? Now, I think it's quite common for us to hear sermons like this and we're, we're almost up, right, let's do it, let's add to everything. We're going we're gonna to see some massive surge in Christ-likeness in no time at all. That's like John Travolta. Um, and he, we, see, we expect, you know, we just look for this sudden thing. It's like one day, it's like the guy who sits in the sofa, you know, eating his cheesy puffs, thinking one day I'm going to be rich and he's playing PlayStation 4. He's like 30. You know, what's, you're not going to be rich. You're, you're going to waste your life playing computer games. We can think that actually it's just going to hit us. One of these days we're just going to peak in godliness and it's going to be awesome. Well, I don't think that that's how it works. I don't think that's what we read at all in the New Testament. In fact, what Peter tells us in this passage here is, is, is something that's, that's, that's easier than that. That by God, by his goodness and his grace, does not expect some sudden surge. Though it can happen. It can happen. I think we can learn a lot from a guy called Dave Brailsford. In 2010, Dave Brailsford faced a really tough job. He was appointed the boss of Team Sky, so Great Britain's cycling team, and was tasked with finding a British rider to do what no British cyclist had ever done before, win the Tour de France. The question everybody was asking when he was appointed was, how? How are you going to do it? Lots and lots of people before you have tried They brought in all these weird and wonderful ways to change the training and shape the bikes and all this kind of stuff so that these guys could win. How are you going to do it? Well, his approach was really simple. Brailsford said, 
we overestimate the importance of some major change and underestimate the value of making small changes on a daily basis. So I will employ a principle known as the aggregation of marginal gains. Brailsford believed that in every area of cycling, if you improved by just 1%, then these small gains would add up to a remarkable overall improvement. So he started optimizing the kind of things that you would expect, you know, the, the, the weight of the tires, the aerodynamics of the bike, um, the weekly training program, the nutrition of the riders. But Brailsford was fascinating. He didn't just stop there. You know, he looked for 1% improvements in every area of the team's life so that they would, even, they would even carry out tests where pillows would come under scrutiny. They wanted to find the pillow that offered the best sleep and took it with them to pre-race hotels. Now, Brailsford believed that if they could make tiny improvements in every area of the cyclist's life, then Team Sky would be in a position to win the Tour de France in five years. He was wrong. They won it in three. They won it in three when Bradley Wiggins crossed the finish line in Paris. Brailsford actually went on, of course, to manage the GB team at the 2012 Olympics, raking in 70% of the gold medals that were on offer there. Now, I think that's a useful illustration for us of what it looks like to grow in Christ-likeness. Christians can feel totally overwhelmed by the goal of Jesus. Do you ever feel that? Do you ever just feel like, actually, I've, I've just stumbled into sin today. It's only half past nine. And it just feels hard, doesn't it? At times it feels hard. And in those moments, the goal of Christ-likeness just seems too far. Even a smidgen of that is too far. But we underestimate the importance and what can be achieved by making small changes on a daily, on a daily basis and how over time it can make all the difference. And so I wonder, are you, could you maybe take that into consideration tonight? Could you maybe talk with your friends, the folks that you come to church with, or maybe with the growth group that you're a part of, or in young adults, and, and talk about actually what are the, how can we grow? What do you do to grow in godliness? What do you do to grow in knowledge? What does, what does your reading pattern look like? Well, do you know what? I, I never, ever read a book. So do you know what I do? I meet up with this guy who's really bright. And he, I, I ask him a question say, what books have you been reading recently? And he tells me a summary in 10 minutes. Bonus. You know, find ways. Talk to one another. Find ways to grow in self-control. How many of us have wayward lusts? Unhealthy, ungodly desires. We're pursuing the things that make us completely indistinguishable from those who don't know Jesus when in fact we are the very people who are to be totally distinct so that we might offer a true testimony of Jesus and prove that the, the fact that the gospel works that we can escape the corruption in this world caused by evil desires caused by Peter says in verse 4 
and participate in the divine nature. Don't be overwhelmed by the target, brothers and sisters. But don't underestimate the value of the aggregation of marginal gains. His divine power has given you everything you need for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who loved us and gave himself for us. He has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them we'll participate in the divine nature. How will you lay hold of these great truths? We must never ever forget that even when it comes to this thing called sanctification, that we can expect great things from God. And with the power that he supplies, attempt great things for God. And even the marginal gains are great things. Pray to God that we will not live unwasted lives, but lives that are productive and effective. We'll get into that next week. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your power.